This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore, this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally, mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, F. Scott Field, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Pone. We're here to talk uh, with the world-renowned Dr. Chad Cook. Dr. Cook is a clinical researcher, physical therapist, and profession advocate with a history of clinical care excellence and service. His passions include refining and improving the patient examination process and validating tools used in day-to-day physical therapist practice. Dr. Cook has authored or co-authored three textbooks, has published over 200 peer-reviewed manuscripts, and lectures internationally on orthopedic examination and treatment. Chad, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Being a Wake Forest and ECU guy, uh, I've had the pleasure of seeing you speak several times over the years, uh, and each time has been very valuable. So I know we kept your bio relatively brief, but is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about you that we didn't already mention? Well, um, I'm a program director right now at Duke University and a full professor, and uh, probably most importantly, I'm a St. Louis Cardinals baseball fan, have been for life. Oh no! I got. I have a confession to make, Chad. I'm from the Chicagoland area, so I gotta say, go Cubs. If I would have known this ahead of time, I wouldn't have agreed to talk with you guys. Well, you got two strikes against you here, Chad, because I'm a I'm a Wake Forest guy, you know. So that Wake Forest Duke uh, competition's a pretty tough one too, you know. Well, yeah, we we, we kind of see Wake Forest as a cult, so. Uh... <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. At least one thing's for sure. We're all getting a, a very great World Series this year. Uh, we're, we're wrapping up on the baseball season, and it's been phenomenal. Yeah, it's actually beating the ratings in football now, which is really good for the sport. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious, Chad, what made you become a Cardinals fan? Like, did you grow up around that area? Or? I'm actually from St. Louis. Um, my mother tells the story that she was pregnant in '64 with me when the Cardinals were in the World Series against the Yankees, and. I've just always been a Cardinal fan. I cannot remember when I wasn't a Cardinal fan. So, Oh, that's awesome. And kind of before mentioning your role within, within Duke, I'm kind of curious here, Chad. Do you think you could tell our audience a little bit about your academic journey and how it led you to kind of where you're at today? Sure. You know, I started out as a clinician, and uh, like a lot of folks, I was pushed into an administrative role. So by my fourth year out, uh, I was a director of rehab I ran several clinics in a hospital-based system, and about nine years into my clinical career, I really was more keen on education than anything. So I was offered a position at Texas Tech University as a as a faculty member and as the uh, regional chair, and I took the position in 1999. I uh, worked for five years at Texas Tech and uh, completed my PhD there and really learned a lot from people like Jean-Michel Brisme and Phil Sizer and really wonderful educators. And then got lucky and took a position at Duke in 2004, uh, stayed there for six years until 2010, and I was interested in taking a leadership position 
as a program director. So I took the chair position at Walsh University, which is in Ohio. I was there for four years and then was lured back to Duke, primarily to do research. And then within about a year into coming back to Duke, they asked me to take the program director position. I've been doing that for the last three years. So that takes me up to this point. I'm, you know, program director, have a research position at Duke and, and, um, Love everything about what I do. Awesome. Uh, Chad, what are some reasons that new grads or maybe clinicians who've been out a few years in their career should consider a terminal degree such as an EDD or a PhD? So what happened to me is I, I was really, I really found myself more interested in the research side of our profession than, you know, plugging away day to day in a clinic. And I know that I talk to a lot of my former students and they, and sometimes they, they clinical life gets a little mundane for them, or maybe they're looking for the next step in their career or how they can contribute to the profession beyond the noble uh, element of being a clinician. And there are just some people that are really, they just have that fire in them to to really investigate things. And those are the type of people I think that should consider an EDD or a PhD, just someone who wants to maybe go to the next level and, and, and train others. Gotcha. And Granted, I realize this next question that I'm going to ask kind of really depends on the program, the course of study, and a few other factors, Chad, but do you think you could tell us a little bit about how PhD programs are generally structured here in the U.S.? Yes, I can. And, uh, you know, having been involved with these for some time and, and having gone through a, UA, a U.S. PhD model, the United States does their PhD training quite a bit different than a lot of other countries do. Uh, it and it's almost an extension of a master's degree. You 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 end up going to school an additional two to three years, mostly three years, taking coursework, being part of a a school or a, a an academic program. And uh, and and what's interesting about it is is that you you as you train and as you take these courses, you develop the, your ideas for study. So you don't go in with a research idea. You develop that research idea based on your interactions with those individuals that you train with. And then you also learn, maybe identify within the, your educational program, those individuals that you would you would most want to uh, work with on a team or, or have mentor you in a, in a PhD program. So in the United States, very much the PhD programs are they tend to be the, the they tend to involve faculty that are those that do research within that particular program and that are really interested in, in training up those individuals through research. So PhD really is, is built around research. That's the idea behind a PhD. Gotcha. And of course, you know, just being able to hear that, and I think like you said before, it really depends on the individual kind of knowing thyself and kind of self-reflecting and seeing what path they want to go to, whether they want to change after clinicals. That's definitely could be a next best step. And I think that was very helpful to kind of hear what the process is regarding that. And Something that I've been kind of curious about, this is something I've kind of heard, and I'm just curious to get your opinion on this one, is, is there any difference between educators with an EDD and those with a PhD in regards to teaching styles or abilities? Well, if you're talking about teaching, I think that, I mean, the EDD is really built around training individuals to understand curriculum, best teaching models, to how to engage students better, how to understand the learner more so. Whereas in a PhD program, in for example, mine, I took two college teaching courses. And in EDD, the program of study is really built around this concept completely. So they understand education and curriculum so much more than your average research PhD. And they're really well-trained to help build that 
and, and to build a and, and and really to build that environment for learning. So I, I really respect EDDs because, in fact, I'll, I'll be flat honest. When it comes to uh, decisions about what we should do about the curriculum, you know, what's the best way of doing something with respect to education. I generally consult them because they've got a better background than I do. Yeah, Chad, that's actually reassuring to hear. As a, I'm, I'm kind of working on my dissertation right now for my EDD, and I, you know, I've been kind of lost as far as which direction to head with it, which is one of the reasons that I, you know, joined uh, Brandon here for the podcast was to kind of learn more about academia and just you know some different avenues that we could use it in. But I, I was curious now that you've talked a little bit about the the PhD here in the U.S. Could you tell us some of the major differences between a PhD here in the states versus the international PhD programs? I'd be happy to. Um, I've been involved with both, and having been on committees. Uh, having a, a current student in an international PhD program right now, having conjoint appointments in other universities across the world, I do feel like I know a lot about these and, and the differences. I would say, as I mentioned before, in the U.S. model, you, you end up taking a lot of classes and and you train up. Uh, you train up traditionally through coursework. You usually pay unless you go to a program that has a uh, federally funded grant like a T. 32 or something like that that'll help support that student or if they're if your mentor has dollars to help supplement your cost or if you take an RA position something like that but you generally pay and and usually if a in a especially in a public system those schools are subsidized pretty heavily for PhD students so they're actually reimbursed greater for PhD students than they are for bachelors but you take a lot of courses on the US model you the dissertation phase is generally after you've taken all those courses and usually you're expected to to publish maybe one and a maximum two papers off your dissertation. In an international model, you aren't expected to go to class at all. In fact, you are expected to approach uh, the university with a research idea and to build a mentorship and collaboration team in, within that proposal. And in most cases, you complete your PhD, you'll go through the same, you know, the defense of the PhD, that sort of thing. But in, in essence, you have to publish your way toward your PhD. Uh, the folks that I've been involved with have published anywhere from five or six papers uh, before they actually can complete their PhD. So very two different, very very different models. And and by the way, in many of them, you don't pay anything. Uh, most of the universities recognize that PhD student provides publications for that university, and and those publications are currency, and they get credit for those publications, and that helps them in their environments for their ranking system. Australia is like that. So I definitely think the models are completely different, and and it really depends on the person. And I apologize if I'm going long on this, but if I think a lot of very new learners probably would fit well into a U.S. model. But if you're a seasoned individual that already has a background in research, then the international model might be the best route to go. Gotcha. No, that's interesting, especially to hear the completely differences between those two models there. I, I did not know that the international model was that at that level, especially from a cost and totally how it's different in terms of implementation. And, you know, I guess a question that I got for you kind of is, you know, from here in the U.S., is it feasible for a student stateside here to pursue an international Ph.D.? And how would they be received if they tried to come back to the States to teach them? Well, the answer to whether they can pursue an international Ph.D. is is absolutely yes. In fact, uh, there are some really well-known people that you're probably familiar with that are actually going through this right now. 
One that just completed it about a year ago, Eric Hegedus from High Point, uh, completed his work at uh, University of Ulster in Ireland. Mike Raymond, who is a really talented researcher, I think he has about 80 publications already, is completing his PhD through the University of Copenhagen. And then, in, oh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the, the third one, but in essence, there, oh, I'm sorry, Dan Ron, who already has a DSC, but has decided to get a PhD through Newcastle, and I'm on his committee. And, and he's a seasoned researcher as well, very talented, talented guy. And he's going through that international model. So you can definitely be a person here that's stateside and interact in these, these programs. It's really about having the appropriate contacts and identifying a proper mentor and, and also being the type of person that's going to follow through on this, that can function on their own and can really do what they claim that they're going to do. As far as whether or not this will work toward a person coming back to teach in the States, absolutely. Uh, when it comes to a PhD, one doesn't really discriminate in an academic setting if they receive their PhD in the UK or Germany or, or wherever, uh, especially in really high-level programs that come out of New Zealand or Australia or the UK the, the, or the Netherlands or Belgium. I mean, these are some really solid folks that get trained through those systems. So, and, you know, one of the things that I wanted to mention is that we're going to be seeing a tremendous lack of PhDs within our system and, and teaching in our programs. And as you guys know, CAPTI requires at least 50% of faculty in PT programs to have a terminal academic degree, not not a terminal DPT, but an academic degree. So there, there are tremendous opportunities to teach in the U.S., whether they have a PhD here locally or whether they received it overseas. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, Chad. And I'm curious about, you know, we kind of talked about if someone from stateside here in the U.S. went to come, went to went overseas to get their PhD and then come back. I'm curious about if what if it was the other way around? Do you commonly see like a people from, you know, international countries come to the U.S. to get a PhD there? And is that well received when they return back to their country as well? Very well received because, you know, it, it's funny you watch uh, you watch the news and the U.S. high school systems don't rank as high as many of the other programs around the world, but our universities absolutely do. And it's considered a an extremely valuable thing to have a PhD from the United States. So you do see a lot of individuals from China and India and other places that'll come and get trained in the United States and then go back and become leaders in their particular areas in their own countries. So there's there's great value in that. So Chad, being that you know, the U.S. Ph.D. is relatively valuable. Um, is there anything else that these Ph.D. programs in the States should be adopting from the international programs to take it up a level maybe? And, and if so, why? So this is, the following is my opinion, and it's based on my experience. You know, I think I've been in academia now for 18 years. We have a lot of Ph.D.s in the United States that complete their training. They go through the, the rigor of getting a Ph.D. in five to seven years, and then they get out and get an academic position and never do research. My feeling is if you're interested in an academic position and you don't maybe have a burning passion to do research, then you should just target an EDD and, and be the best teacher that you can possibly be, which is a very noble and valuable. One of the things that an international PhD does that a lot of programs in the United States, and I'm not I'm not saying it's all programs because there are PhD programs in the United States that have, they do it the right way. University of Delaware's PhD program, University of Florida, uh, their PhD program is stellar. Those programs require people to publish 
before you complete, but a lot of programs don't, or they only require one publication. So if there's anything in the international model that I do think could be adopted by the states, it's really that applied learning model of you have to do research to get to the finish line of that PhD. You have to show that you're competent in research, and and you have to show that competence by publishing your work. And to me, that is the ultimate litmus test of whether or not your PhD had value or not, whether you're able to tackle a meaningful question and, and take that question to completion and actually vet it. And a, lot, and a lot of programs don't really require that very much. Some programs, they're more interested in getting people in uh, to do the PhD work and, and then get you through, but they don't necessarily want to mold you into a researcher. So the one piece, and, and by the way, I'm very balanced in my viewpoint on this. I think there's, I have an, I have a U.S. PhD, and one of the greatest values of a U.S. PhD is that mentorship relationship of, of working with someone who can help shape you into who you are. And I tell the story of, you know, my PhD mentor who used to just sit down with me and we would crunch numbers on SAS, and that's really le- where I learned how to do research and do biostatistics. And, and you can't really do that in an international model unless you spend time with people. But So there's value for both, but definitely the, the thing that the U.S. PhD pre- programs need to do is, is focus more on uh, applied research. Gotcha. No, that seems to make sense, especially since, you know, obviously for a PhD, the goal is to become a researcher. So I mean, it definitely makes sense that there should be some ability to perform independent research and publish it to a degree that definitely seems to make sense. And you kind of touched on this before, Chad, in terms of why that's kind of not happening. I'm just curious, are there any like regulations that are required that hit that at all? Or is it just a matter of programs not electing to do that? Like what's, in your opinion, why is that not being done on a grander scale in the U.S.? I think there are a number of reasons. I, you know, having been a person that mentors PhD projects, I think there is a limited amount that you can actually invest in because of the amount of time it takes to, to really train somebody appropriately. And if you have multiple uh, PhD students, you're just not going to be able to give them the time they need to grow. So I think that's part of it. I think a second part of it, too, is, is really the institutional culture. You know, some people have told me this before, that the most important decision you can make is the first is your mentor and the second is your institution. And, and I think that's actually true. Your mentor is going to drive your training, is going to be the person who allows you to get by with things. But the institution is the environment that provides the blueprint of the expectations of that PhD. So if you get a, a PhD at an institution such as Harvard, there's going to be higher expectations than maybe a directional state school somewhere. And, and, and that's not a knock against the directional state school. It's just that there, there are expectations at some universities that they really they expect things from their graduates. And many schools right now that offer PhDs don't expect heavy contributions from their students. They don't expect there to be a high, you know, there to be a high threshold for these particular areas. And because some of these state schools especially are compensated at such a higher rate for PhD students, it's more about numbers than it is about accomplishment. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And you know, kind of when you touch touch on that last note there, I know, at least for others that I know and myself as well, that research has never been an avenue that I've at least wanted to go down initially. But for those in our audience who are perhaps on the fence and maybe not sure, I think one thing that's important to at least 
bring up and have a broad discussion about. And of course, I realize that this next question is going to vary based on the program, course of study. And, you know, I realize that this, this, there's a lot of variables with this next question. But Chad, do you think you could kind of overall talk about kind of the financial incentives from being a researcher and kind of the salaries that anyone can range from? Certainly in uh, academic rank, research is the strongest thing you can do to elevate yourself. And you guys are probably familiar with the academic ranks. There's the lowest level would be a medical instructor or an instructor, and then it goes to an assistant professor and then associate and then a full professor. And in most institutions, research-based institutions, in order to get a full professor, you have to have a long track record of uh, success in scholarship. And that's either through funding or publishing. A lot of other small schools, small private schools, it, you know, you do your time serve and you move up to assistant, associate, full professor. But in, in most research-based institutions, tier one institutions, you don't increase your rank unless you've actually had success with uh, scholarship. So publishing helps build that piece of it. And certainly as each rank increase, there's a salary increase as well, and it becomes more profitable for somebody. But there's a second piece to this that I want to talk about, because I, I mentioned to my students that research is power. If you complete research, if you're part of research, if you publish a lot, then it also opens many doors for you to be a speaker, to teach workshops, to train others, to do consulting work, you know, and the sky's the limit with respect to that, because often that research is a form of credibility that never goes away. It goes on your CV and it doesn't get erased and it becomes part of you forever. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity that is associated with successful research, financial and other. It's hard to describe coherently, but it just opens so many doors for a person to, to, to collaborate with others. You know, I just, it, we were talking ahead of time. I just came back from France and a wonderful experience there. I was there for six days and I would have never had that opportunity if I didn't have a track record of scholarship success because the French physios are very interested in evidence. I mean, they're, they're passionate. They're just craving evidence outside of France. So they're bringing in a lot of researchers to come in and talk about their research and looking at ways to transfer that to their clinical practice. Yeah, Chad, speaking of uh, international opportunities and the doors being open, what are some steps that American healthcare providers can take in order to start getting involved in international education, seminars, continuing ed, and conferences like you were just talking about? Well, I think one way is, you know, there, there, there's such growth all over the world and with, you know, burgeoning programs. And I was in Mexico about two and a half weeks ago, and physiotherapy in Mexico is such a modern, I think it's it really, it literally, it's only been around for about five or 10 years. So in Mexico, they're, they're craving information. They're looking for opportunities and, and they are looking externally from Mexico for people to come in and help train them. You know, Mexico doesn't have a lot of money. And if, but if someone is willing to invest in a place like that, invest in places like Chile and Brazil and, and other really burgeoning environments where physical therapy is starting to really take off, then it gives people those opportunities to go internationally. Other environments such as that may be a little bit more difficult to get a foothold in would be in Australia, uh, New Zealand, UK, people that already have a, a really firm infrastructure with respect to research and PT. You almost have to have a pretty strong research background to make a dent into those environments for people that want, really want to hear what you're saying and to go there and, and assist in the training process. 
But there are so many countries now that are passionate about elevating their own status in PT. And you guys know, healthcare-wise, we need it. And we need this all over the world. We need rehab specialists. You need individuals who can take the place, can play a role in the healthcare system that's an essential role and, and a growing role. And the training we get in the U.S. is is really elevated compared to many other countries, and, and we can really help them step it up. Yeah, no, I think you make a good point there, Chad. And, you know, kind of going into the international education realm, what are some of the characteristics that international educators you believe should possess to be considered a top-notch educator, in your opinion? Well, you know, it used to be charisma. It was essentially all you needed and, uh, and, and, and kind of a sexy product. Um, I think nowadays you have, to have, you have to have something to back that information. The gone are the days where you can, you know, the, where you're the siren and you can speak and you can, uh, you can woo people into believing what you do. I think now it's really about giving structure to the learner and then providing information behind it that supports why that particular approach is useful. And we, we're seeing more and more of the clinician researcher, the person who dabbles in both fields, that is becoming the most meaningful teacher because they, they understand both areas. And those are the characteristics, I think, are the top-notch individuals who can succeed in an international environment. And if I could give you a couple of examples, uh, Deborah Fela from, I think she's from Denmark, she teaches in so many different environments and, um, and does an exceptional job, by the way, because she's contributed so heavily to the research. And then Gwendolyn Joel is another great example of a person that absolutely has contributed so much to the research, but also as a wonderful educator. Yeah, Chad, once again, that's just a really reassuring information because, I, you know, for me, it, I, I do love teaching and I love the education aspect. Research, I'm still kind of up in the air about, but I, I do, at the root of everything, I love the clinical work. So I, I think, you know, I, I feel like it's reassured my choices that I've made so far and that I've really uh, kind of taken a path that's going to work out in the end. So, um Again, I'd like to just you know take a moment to uh, to thank you for coming on the show again. We really appreciate you taking your time to talk with us. Um, we like to ask all of our guests this final question: um, If you could change one aspect of higher education, DPT programs or otherwise, what aspect would you change, and how would you change it? Wow. Um, I mean, there are a lot of things that I would. If I could change them, there are a lot of things that I think. So, for example, I, I think the cost is too high, and I really feel for the students that graduate with such debt, and it concerns me a lot with respect to that. I think we have too many programs. Um, if there was a way that you know, I, I just think there are too many PT programs. I think probably having fewer programs and and a greater dedication to those programs, and and maybe pooling. Uh, some of the best educators to a few programs. The other one, though, that I think probably would is more reasonable and something that is obtainable is I really do think applied learning is the strongest form of learning. I mean, if you guys think back to the most meaningful times when you were in school, it, it's probably when there was a patient in front of you and you were co-learning in a preceptorship model with a mentor and you know, whether that was your academician or whether it was in a clinical environment, I think more of that can actually be built into a formal academic setting. And, you know, I think there are ways of doing that. I know at Duke, we are revising our curriculum so that the whole second year has more of that experience. 
And uh, I, if so, if I could change if I could change all the programs, that's probably the biggest of higher education. That's probably what I would do more applied learning. Yeah, I think that's interesting, Chad. And actually, not too long in the past weeks here, we actually had Dr. William Jeffries on the show from the University of Vermont Medical Center. And he kind of talked about their no lecture model and how they really blend the active learning approach. And, you know, when he talked about the data that was out there regarding its effectiveness and really in terms of that, how hugely effective it was compared to the traditional lecture based approach. And, you know, initially he found that that was tough to implement. But once he showed the evidence to his staff, that definitely seemed to change their minds. And I definitely think that would be something that could be implemented or at least considered openly to discuss as well. And I'm just curious. That seems kind of what you're talking about as well in that. It is. And the other thing, you know, Duke, for, for the last eight years or so, we've been a team-based learning environment. And we're surprised. We're still really the only primary team-based learning environment in the United States. And students learn better in teams. And they actually function better when they get out because they're used to functioning in teams. So we do that part pretty well. But the, the active piece, you know, I, I complete, completely agree with Dr. Jeffries. Reducing or completely eliminating lectures is the way to go. And there are ways that you can train up people and prepare them so that they have more of an active learning experience when they are in class or they're in the laboratory environment. And it's definitely, we're definitely in agreement there. And Vermont's a good program too. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, Chad, thanks again so much for all that, we've kind of talked about this evening because I've definitely learned a few new things and I love it with each episode. I learned something new from every single guest and I'm glad that we can kind of provide this to our audience and our listeners as well. And would you mind Chad telling our audience kind of where they can find you online and on social media? Yeah, sure. So I'm not, I'm not uh, online that much. I am on Twitter. So I'm at, at Chad Cook PT and uh, I tweet about once or twice a month, but it's usually about something meaningful, not about going to the grocery store or something like that. And usually I, I try to stay on top of some of the meaningful researches out and kind of give my viewpoint on that. And for example, we, we just published a really wonderful paper that we're excited about where you could go to PT first or an MD first. And, and then we compared the cost outcomes. We had Blue Cross Blue Shield actually calculate the cost outcomes with that. And the cost associated with going to a PT first was maybe half of what it would to do an MD first for spine oriented pain. And I, and I've been tweeting about that and our paper that's coming out in JOSPT. So at Chad Cook PT is probably the best way if a person wants to, to follow me on that. I'm not on Facebook or, or other things. Awesome, Chad. Well, again, thanks so much for your time with everything. It was fantastic to have you on and thanks for coming. Hey, thanks guys. And, and good luck to you. And I wish you both a great success and, uh, And I really do honestly appreciate being on. No, the pleasure is all ours. Thank you. Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.